Hello, everyone. Tom Fox back again with Hughes Hubbard partner Mike DeBernardis for another episode of The Corruption Files. Today, we're going to take up one of the most fascinating cases, although the fine may not make the top 10 or even 20, the Walmart case. So, Mike, first of all, welcome back. Thanks, Tom. I'm excited uh, for this conversation. I, I did my Cyber Monday Walmart shopping just to get ready, just to get, get fully in the mode for it. Fully in the mode. Well, let me change uh, your focus just a little bit uh, because I used to live in a location which had the Sunday de delivery of the New York Times. And I can still remember April 21, 2012, looking at the front page above the fold where the New York Times reported allegations of bribery and corruption in uh, Walmart's Mexico subsidiary. And that was the first time I had ever seen anything close to an FCPA discussion on the front page of the New York Times, let alone above the fold. And that really announced this case. And it was just the start. It, it rocked and rolled and it touched so many people. It impacted us in so many different ways. And I um, really just wanted to, to kind of review that this from the point forward of that. And I will start with the next morning about 9 a.m. I started calling my CCO friends to make sure they were aware of it and that they would use that uh, to communicate to their senior executives. And the first guy called said, you know, Tom, I just got back from a meeting with our ELT and I took the paper and, <laughs> and, and literally that's the impact it had on the compliance community and certainly the enforcement community uh, for you guys uh, as well, uh, what for me was professionally, it was actually the best thing that could happen for the following reason. Uh, when the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, and most importantly, PBS started calling around to their A-listers for comment, they were lawyers who wanted in on the case. And so they had to decline and they worked their way down to me. <laughs> and I was literally interviewed on uh, PBS NewsHour uh, about that case. And that really uh, lifted my uh, presence uh, in the compliance commentary. The rest is history. But um, Walmart faced uh, withering criticism, criticism from the U.S. Congress, criticism internationally who from people who said, see, we told you they were evil all along. Um, they uh, spent uh, over 900 million, publicly reported over $900 million in costs, uh, pre-resolution investigation and remediation costs. They had uh, the bribery schemes themselves were in three countries. Mexico was the one that was uh, most reported in the New York Times, but there was also bribery allegations from the Brazilian business unit and from the Indian business unit. There were uh, clearly an internal whistleblower had uh, been interviewed by the Times because they had names, dates down to the, uh, I wrote this down, they had a code word in Mexico for the reason bribes were paid that they reported on their internal controls. And it was called a clave where they would note whether uh, what it was for. The case percolated along, uh, as you pointed out, seven seven years and it just seemed to drag on forever uh part of that i have to believe was the size of walmart at 2.2 million 
uh, employees and literally the world's biggest retailer. I don't know if it, it received as how much scrutiny it would have received inside the Department of Justice, but it was so high profile it had to receive significant scrutiny internally as well. But in June of 2019, the case settled for the amount of $282 million, and I think many of us were surprised by that amount, but we'll get into some of the discussion of, of what Walmart achieved and how they achieved that. So I've given you kind of a broad brush overview from my perspective. What about from, from where you guys sat? And, and you were actually an associate back I, then. I was. <laughs> yeah, this was, this, it was interesting for me. Um, I was, I had been an associate for a few years at the time and had been spending my time outside of the office trying to explain to my family and friends what I did. And so it was nice seeing this in the front time of the New York Times and be like, this is what I do. Look at, read this article. This is exactly what I do. Um, so it, it was, I, it's easy to forget now how big of a deal this was. Um, and I, I think for a number of reasons. One, like you said, this was on the front, front, front page of the New York Times. Um, major story. Walmart, biggest company in the world. Um, brand name. Because a lot of the FCPA cases up to that point were, you know, in the oil and gas industry or, or it, it, you know, it, uh, very big companies that you would know if you're in the business, but maybe not necessarily for everyday consumer. And so this became a, just a huge story. And then, as you said, it went on forever. I mean, it, it dragged on for years. And so there was this expectation when, when it finally resolved that it was going to be, I mean, you know, people, people build sort of a myth up, right? That this was going to be a, just a massive fine. This organization was, you know, an organization built on corruption and, and it was going to be this huge deal. I, I feel like when, when the papers were, were finally filed, it, it sort of fizzled. I mean, I, we can't, the, the, the ultimate penalty is nothing to scoff at. And I'm sure we'll dig into a little bit of the, the, the actual facts and the misconduct here, which again, is nothing to scoff at, but it's, it's, it's not kind of what we all anticipated. Um, and I think you have to put that in context. And then the other big takeaway for, for me, especially looking back at it now, is um, th the mistakes made early on in the investigation here. And we, we had this theme when we talked about Avon in our last episode, that mistakes early on that could have saved the company probably hundreds of millions of dollars in investigation costs. Because as you mentioned, you know, they paid 200 and change in, in disgorgement and penalties here. Um, but 900 million, aside from that, $900 million in investigation and compliance costs reported, right? So, um, and, and that might be expected for an investigation that, that dragged on for seven or eight years, but um, huge amount of money that could have been saved if things had just sort of been fully addressed right at the outset. Um, so let's go back to that because that was a fascinating part as reported in the New York Times. Initially, allegations percolated up to the corporate headquarters at Bentonville about bribery and corruption in Mexico. And one author, one investigation was authorized and it was authorized to be done by the um, senior leadership in Mexico. Well, guess who was engaging in the bribery and corruption? And I, as I always say, if asked to investigate myself, I will tell you the answer now before I complete my investigation. It's all good. And that's what happened. Then there was a second attempt at an investigation and um, an unnamed, uh, very prominent law firm was brought in to propose an investigation protocol 
and it was rejected uh, because it was too, viewed as too thorough. And at this time, there was tremendous growth and expansion by Walmart in Central or Mexico and intercentral in South America. Uh, the Mexican operation uh, was reported to have contributed as high as 20% of the corporation's overall profits in the first decade of this year. So there was clearly an economic, economic incentive, which led to some very ostrich-like behavior by Bentonville, the corporate headquarters. But as you correctly point out, if either of these allegations had been taken seriously and investigations done by credible outside counsel uh, and in actions, remedi appropriate remediation actions taken in 0506, the 900 million plus a 282 million paid at the back end may not have occurred. The um, let me let me go go to your point about the the fizzle at the end, because um, three of the compliance commentary out of which I am a part of, we all had different views on that. And Matt Kelly wrote that this was just ordinary, just a run of the mill case. Um, largely because of the fine and penalty. I thought the fine and penalty may have been less than we had anticipated, but by its very nature, when Walmart does something, everyone listens. And so for that reason alone, it was significant. Mike Volkoff went a little bit deeper into the weeds by saying the lesson was rapid expansion presents great opportunity and great risk. And that risk has to be assessed and managed. And I thought that was a very good lesson learned. But I think simply because it was just Walmart, that made it significant. And although we may have thought it, it did sort of fizzle out, as you said, I really think that this case stands for a lot. And not only were there significant lessons, but I think that those lessons can still be applied today. And I want to go back to about six months after the New York Times article, there was a guy named Matt Ellis, uh, who was then a solo lawyer, and now he's with Miller. And he wrote a blog post. It was entitled, Walmart Go Big. And he advocated that because of Walmart's size, if they went as big as they could in compliance, that it would they would get credit for it at the end of the day. And I'm not sure how many of the specific tactics or suggestions they may have implemented, but they really did go big. And they did it in a public way because they told us what they did. They, when they settled, they put out a, I think a 30 or 40 page report that detailed the, their remediation. And that I thought was not only a, a great sort of PR move, but actually a great thing for the compliance community because we could slice it and dice it and it was publicly available we could all use it. And even during the remediation, I thought they were pretty open about the steps they were taking on the remediation side, recognizing they weren't as open on the investigative side as they was their right in the way they should have conducted themselves. But they were pretty open about that. And they were open about the challenges of changing a culture of 2.2 million workers who speak literally every language on earth. And to the point where they and, and employees with educational 
levels from the third grade to PhDs and how they had to put together a program to just to start to communicate the values they wanted to imbue. And so I really think, um, although the, once again, we all thought the fine and penalty was perhaps not as much as we expected, there was really a lot here that we can all uh, use. And if it was ordinary, as Matt suggested, the very ordinariness of the fine showed it was an early precursor to sort of what we see now under the FCPA corporate enforcement action, which is if you extensively uh, remediate and cooperate, you're going to get significant credit from the DOJ going forward. Yeah, I mean, I think to, to your point about it being public, uh, about Walmart being public, um, I, I wonder how much of that was in a direct response to the fact that the investigation was so public because of the New York Times article and the coverage that, that followed, one. And two, Walmart being in a unique position of a company being investigated for, for a FCPA violation, where the reputational harm to their brand was perhaps the thing that they were protecting the most, right? Um, for, for B2B companies to get an FCPA violation, there's a hit to your reputation, but in, in the B2B space, you expect to be able to work through those reputational issues. You know, you, you've got a sophisticated clientele that you're dealing with on a daily basis that you can tell them, you know, understand how this works. When you're dealing with directly to consumers, if you're, brand, if you're branded as a corrupt organization, especially if you're Walmart or this family business historically, and you're branded as this corrupt organization that's doing all these bad things in, in, in all over the world, it can really, really cause financial damage to the company for generations, right? So there was definitely an effort here to, to show everything we're doing right. You made a mistake. Yes, here's everything we're doing right. I, I think certainly the, the fine fizzled. Um, and to me, the conduct was sort of uh, underwhelming as well. Now, now, I think that you can take that two ways. One, one was, um, you know, with the way that this had been portrayed and written up and followed, you expected some sort of grand corruption, right? Walmart paying these mega bribes in in these countries for whatever, whenever they needed permits or whatever it was. And it was something a little bit more mundane. I, I, to your point though, I think when you step back and look at that, that, that might be the most important part of this case, right? You had a company like Walmart, like I said, you know, not selling to the government necessarily, it's a consumer facing business that probably had a relatively low FCPA risk profile and what they were doing was not incredibly risky. You need to get permits to build buildings. Like that's, that's sort of run of the mill stuff. Um, and the fact that they lacked the controls in place and let, led them to FCPA issues, it sort of, you know, we talked about this with Avon as well. It, it sort of opened the door to say, hey, look, if you're doing business internationally, you're, you're at risk. You've got FCPA risk. It doesn't matter what, what industry you're in. It doesn't have to be oil and gas. It doesn't have to be some sort of minerals it doesn't have to be aerospace and defense. If you're doing business internationally, you have FCPA risk. And what better poster child for that than the largest company in the world and the, one of the most recognizable brands in the world? Right. Um, there's a couple of other things that played into this case. I mentioned a congressional investigation, and there was the way Walmart's 
legal department reported up there was domestic and international divisions, and they each had their own general counsel who, uh, or assistant general counsel who reported eventually to the general counsel. And uh, there was either rumors or allegations that the domestic, excuse me, the international counsel had received information about the bribery scheme in Mexico and wrote up a report and sent it to the general counsel. And the, that, so that put it knowledge, alleged actual knowledge at the GC level. Uh, Walmart never allowed her to be deposed, claiming attorney-client privilege in her memo and her. But the general counsel and the then CEO of the company, they ended up leaving the company. And so to your point about Walmart really wanting to protect its reputation, I pretty much saw, and, and the international assistant uh, general counsel, she also left the company, um, really a clean sweep at the senior executive level. And I think that was in response to how the Mexico allegations from 0506 were handled. But the other thing that I thought one of the reasons Walmart had to be so proactive in dis discussing this publicly was every store Walmart has anywhere in the world requires a permit. And if you're going to go into Cheshireshire in some little hamlet in England, and the first question from the town council is, how much have you offered for this? Because that's their reputation. I thought it would, it would essentially limit their ability to expand or get any new licenses. So that for that reason, because every time they have a store, they have one or more government touch points. And then of course there's inspections and taxes and all of the things that a business has to engage in with a government to run literally down to the local level. And so I thought Walmart, one of the reasons they engaged in such a proactive PR campaign around what they were doing was for reputational damage control, but it was actually, it had a real business justification behind it because it wasn't just you or I saying, well, we're not going to shop there because they're corrupt. It was, they might not be able to get a permit because the local citizenry believed they were corrupt. And that was a bigger uh, source of damage. So, um, but at the end of the day, I really don't care the reason somebody is public about their remediation, because for me, it's information for the compliance community. So I applaud that effort, really, for whatever reason you might have. Yeah, no, I, I think that's a really, a really good, I hadn't thought about the reputational issue in that way. I, I think that's a really good point and probably, um, uh, you know, more immediately affecting their, their plans internationally, right? But um, your point about the benefits of, of Walmart being so public in terms of their remediation, especially their, their compliance enhancements, I think it is right. I mean, it, it, it's also a very unique company, as you pointed out, in terms of its size and its, its diversity. And so to get a nice case study for other companies as to, to how, did, how did Walmart do it, how did Walmart organize it, uh, is really useful. Because, you know, I think if, if you do your research, you can find some compliance policies from a lot of companies out there. What's harder to find is information about compliance organization and structure. And that's sometimes even, even more important information if you're trying to benchmark what you're doing uh, with other companies. And so this is really useful information. It still is really useful information today.
Uh, the, uh, perhaps one of the points I'd like to explore with you that uh, Mike Volkoff really, I thought, articulated as well as anyone, which is around expansion, rapid expansion, and the risks of rapid expansion, not the risk of doing that, but of, of leading to cutting corners or some other type of conduct that can get a company into trouble. And, and how can you use a case like this to help counsel clients who may find themselves either through, through uh, true strategic planning, rapidly expanding, or because of business opportunity, such as COVID-19 or the Russian invasion of Ukraine uh, around this? Yeah, I think, so if, if you look at this case and the, and the background facts, I think the, the Walmart's effort to rapidly expand internationally is certainly a foundational piece to the misconduct. They were opening hundreds and thousands of new locations. Um, and for each one, as you mentioned, they had to get permits from, from you know, state governments, from local municipalities. Um, so each of those was a touch point and, and a risk area. Um, you also have to think about incentives when you're doing this, this sort of rapid expansion, right? How are you incentivizing your, your teams and your local executives? Um, and this is something we talk about a lot with, with our clients is making sure you set proper incentives. So if you are Walmart and your goal is to expand and expand rapidly, but you set, you know, you're, you're incentivizing your executives by saying, you know, we want to open 500 new stores in your location this year, make it happen. This is, that's what your bonus is going to be based on. You're creating some, some really serious incentives for, for those local folks to, to overlook some of the permitting issues. Um, and thinking about in advance, I think there's, it, it maybe less, but, but there was a tendency for a while to say, let's set lofty goals and it pushes our people to make it, make it happen, right? Rather than taking a close look at what's realistic based on the market and, and various uh, regulatory hurdles in place. And so, um, you know, it, it's an important thing to look at early on as you're thinking strategically about what is realistic to do this, how can we set proper incentives? There's nothing wrong with with, with incentivizing your teams uh, with lofty goals to, to accomplish great things, um, but just making sure that that it's realistic and that it's balanced with uh, an effort to make sure you're doing things the right way. And I think that's clearly, if you re read the, the, the charging documents here, um, that's what was missing is, is any effort to, to make sure anything was done the right way or any compliance sort of apparatus at all. So the, um, let me take you back to April, 2012. If you had been uh, counsel to Walmart and you Sunday had read your New York times, uh, would you have convened a board meeting immediately? Would you have, what, how would you have counseled them at that point? After the New York Times article, <laughs> yes, yeah, I think after the New York Times article, a, a, a board meeting and a a very um, strong and serious and strategic plan need, needs to be put in place from from starting from that moment. And it, it's twofold. I, I I can't say that Walmart didn't do this, but twofold. One one piece of it is investigating what what the allegations are and seeing what what may or may not have happened here. And the other side of it is the compliance side of it. You know, um, are we, do we have a compliance program that, 
that fits our, our company, our risk model, and our size and our reputation. Uh, and if not, let's start improving that today, right? Um, and I, you know, I, like I said, I can't say Walmart didn't do that, but this is this is the type of scenario. This this sort of front page news scenario it doesn't happen often, but but when it happens, it's certainly not the time to sort of uh, be gentle. And and it's it's uh, sort of a, a crisis moment for sure. Now let me bring you forward to 2022, specifically after the Monaco memo. What would you, how would you try to deal with the Department of Justice if you're called upon by a truly international massive company uh, that you know it's going to be multiple countries that you have to do an investigation on, even if it's just to test the waters? How do you make the DOJ aware of that and, and allow, get them to allow you to do a reasonably paced investigation so that you can gather the data both to negotiate with them, but also to help your client understand their responsibilities? Yeah, it's, it's a really good question because there's a lot packed into the, to the Monaco memo and really just recent guidance, not just, not just in that one memo about what it means to cooperate with the Department of Justice. Um, you know, their, their focus is certainly on timely cooperation and timely disclosures. Uh, and so there's a, you know, once the article breaks, there's not really a, a, a voluntary disclosure conversation that needs to be had with the client. Uh, and so I, I think engaging with regulators early on in the process immediately is, is important. Um, probably want to come in with a work plan already in, like in place, have uh, a, a very detailed and thoughtful plan to say, this is exactly what we're going to do. Uh, we will keep you informed on, on a regular basis, whatever sort of regular reporting you want. If we find something in the interim that we think is especially relevant or important, we'll, we'll keep you informed. Um, and give, give them confidence that as a company, we're going to take this really serious as a, as a law firm, we know what we're doing and we are going to do this in an orderly fashion, a very thorough investigation, but sort of hand in hand with you so that you're comfortable with what we're doing and you're getting all of the information, uh, in a timely way. And I probably use timely 40 or 50 times during the course of the conversation. Well, that's, uh, I really wanted to pose that question to you because I've thought about how you negotiate both with the DOJ, recognizing that, that you have a client too, and you have an obligation ethically to that client. So uh, this has been a really fun podcast, and it was equally fun sort of re revisiting uh, many of the different components to the Walmart case. And uh, the more I think about it, the more we talk through it, I think uh, – it's, uh, it was a great learning experience then, and I, I think it still is. And I will end with the following that uh, I think uh, for once and all, Walmart killed the argument for a compliance defense because they had a fabulous paper program in place uh, at, at the time of all of this. And um, there was, in the early part of last decade, some, some debate about whether a compliance defense was warranted to the FCPA. And I think Walmart killed that off probably forever. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll conclude with a, um, a piece of pretty obvious advice. There's a line in the SEC documents uh, saying that, that Walmart's China subsidiary made a request to headquarters for FCPA training uh, and it was not provided. 
So I guess my my advice is if you have a subsidiary in a in a foreign country that specifically asks for FCPA training, it's it's probably a good idea to provide it. That may be the best advice uh, you've given throughout this entire podcast series. <laughs> All right, Mike. Till next time. All right. Thanks, Tom.